Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with Alicia J. Kaufman, an Associate Professor of History at Baylor University. Her book, Margaret Mead, A 20th Century Faith, published by Oxford University Press, takes a careful look at Mead's religious origins and influence. As a famous American anthropologist, Mead's intellectual contributions to mid-century culture has been fruitfully studied. Kaufman offers insight into a neglected aspect of Mead's life, her religious views. Born into a home with secular agnostic parents, Mead chose a religious path early and joined the Episcopal Church. As an anthropologist, she believed in the significance of ritual and the importance of service, but rejected many of the particulars of her chosen faith. From DePoe University to Columbia University, through multiple love affairs and marriages, travels and publications, Mead became an influential public intellectual developing her own perspective on social ethics. Her high profile and expansive view of human development offered the opportunity to contribute to mid-20th century liberal Christianity on multiple fronts. Here is my conversation with Alicia J. Kaufman. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Alicia J. Kaufman. Hello, Alicia. Hi there. Welcome to the show, and thank you for coming to discuss the book. But before we get into the book, I want you to explain to the audience uh, about yourself, your background, and why you became interested in Margaret Mead in this book particularly. Right. Um, I was an, gosh, how far back do we want to go? English lit major in college, as well as communications and journalism. So I was a journalist for several years, a magazine journalist. And then before my GRE scores were going to expire, decided I wanted to go to graduate school in American religious history. Um, Because I had been a journalist with an evangelical publishing house, Christianity Today, I was interested in writing about Um, a different kind of religious publishing for my dissertation and first book. So I wrote on the Christian century, the nemesis of Christianity today, and the rise of mainline Protestantism in the 20th century. So print culture, religion, 20th century, liberal mainline was, was sort of the area that I was working in. And then one day I got an email from Tim Larson, who was the was launching a new series with Oxford, the Spiritual Lives series that would focus on the spiritual lives of people who were famous for something other than being spiritual. And he had recently finished a book, The Slain God, on anthropologists and religion. So he knew that Margaret Mead would be a great fit for the series, that she was someone who was famous for something other than being spiritual. And so he asked me if I would be interested in writing on her for the series. Um, just, I think, on the connection that I had written about mainline Protestantism before. I knew very little about Mead, but I looked her up and could tell immediately that it would be a really interesting project. And so I agreed to write it for the series. Now, uh, for the audience who doesn't, who's heard the name Margaret Mead, most people have heard the name, but don't know necessarily why she's important. Can you explain that? So she was arguably the most famous anthropologist of the 20th century, certainly the most famous American anthropologist. She made a splash with her first book, Coming of Age in Samoa, about sexuality and young women and asking these questions about sex and gender. Are they are they more fluid than we realize? Um, is it much more culturally conditioned and not as biological as people thought at the time? And then she went on to publish just an astonishing number of books and articles, and she gave lectures, and she was just everywhere. That was something I I realized as I went through the research. Her life touched on so many different things that I would then have to quickly research something about colonialism in New Guinea, and then something about American book publishing, and something about 
just she was everywhere she was everywhere um so yeah that's why but but she's not as well known now perhaps um maybe a lot of very public figures after their deaths they go through a bit of a a trough when the an older generation expects everybody to already know about her so why would you say any more and then eventually it comes back to oh there's this name i don't know who it is she also didn't track exactly with some of the bigger trends in american feminism um she was older than um the the feminists who came to prominence in the 1970s and there was some generational tension between them so if if the younger feminists didn't consider her one of them then she kind of got left behind so why uh why did she? A lot has been written about Margaret Mead. Uh, historians know a lot about her, of course, but uh, why did why did, Me, did Mead's religious views not get uh, traction or attention? Because I picked this up uh, from her in my study of her. Yeah, that's a really good question, and it seems that there was some disciplinary tension between anthropology and religion, religious studies. Uh, Some of that reflects, I think, tensions out on what we in the West would consider the mission field. Um, Some of my uh, colleagues in in grad school worked on this. Often, if um, white Americans were traveling somewhere else in the world in the middle of the 20th century, the only Westerners there were anthropologists and missionaries. And sometimes they would work together sort of by necessity, but they resented each other because they understood their their projects, their reasons for being in that place to be quite different. So I guess the idea of a um, practicing sincere religious anthropologist just kind of doesn't compute. It, it seems like a, a category problem. Um Liberal Protestants, liberal Protestant women maybe don't fit as many of the the narratives for religious historians either. There's been so much attention to conservative religion, conservative Protestantism, women within conservative Protestantism. What do you do with a very liberal, bisexual, Episcopal anthropologist? Um, Kind of not much before this book, it would seem. So let's talk about her background. Uh, her parents specifically, and how uh, how she was different from her parents religiously. Right. So they were social scientists who were not um, practicing any kind of religion. They let her explore it. They would let her go to church, for example, with whoever was the maid for the family, more as an anthropological investigation of this. This is how a, a different group of people live. Um, but she eventually, when she was 11, decided that she wasn't just going to visit churches um, with anthropological interest. There was one church, the Episcopal Church, that she really fell in love with. It had a new rector. The rector had a daughter who um, she was just pretty enamored with. And in part, I think there was a, a fair amount of instability in Mead's home life her grandmother, who lived with them, had been religious, but there was tension between her and the grandmother and Mead's parents, who were not. Mead's father had a series of um, affairs that created tension. He also frequently lost money. So when young Margaret found the household of the, re- the local Episcopal rector and his daughter, it was this just an idyllic lifestyle as well as a style of worship that Mead found really compelling. And so she chose to be baptized um, at age 11. Which is really unusual for someone who comes from a home where that's not being nurtured. It is unusual, and it was unusual for the Episcopal Church, too. They don't get a lot of members that way at that age. And they they kind of, they welcomed her, but it, it was, she had to kind of make it up on her own. They expect babies baptized by Episcopal families. They're they're not used to renegade eleven year olds. Well, so she she ends up going first to the DePaul University, and there's a certain environment there that does leave a lasting impression on her. Can you talk about that? She kind of hated DePaul. Um, 
she had to go there because that's where her father had gone. That's not where she wanted to go. And it was an early home of a lot of fraternity and sorority life. And she didn't fit in. Um, She was not accepted there. So she felt like an outcast. She did not like being in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. Um, She made one very good friend there and used some early anthropological instincts to navigate that, um, that culture. But she got out as quickly as she could. She was only there for a year. Now, was she not exposed at that time? Was she not exposed to the social gospel or some version of it? That is true. Um, DePaul, it had a, a lecture series that was attracting some, what we would think of as modernist social gospel. So she she would write back to her grandmother, especially the, the religious figure in, in her home household about the religious influences she was having. And she did think that social Christianity was just marvelous. It sort of married the, we're trying to make society better impulses of her social scientist parents um, with her own belief in Christian tradition, Christian scriptures, reinterpreting some parts of Christian theology in ways that she found more congenial, um, that sin, for example, was fundamentally selfishness. And so sin caused social problems, and that's why it's bad. That she that really resonated with her. Now, she went from there, she went to Bernard College and then Columbia University to study with Franz Boas, a famous anthropologist. How did her, at this point in period in her life, you see that her relational patterns reveal themselves through these years uh, with Ruth Benedict and then her student, what she called her student marriage to Cressman, uh, to Martin, uh, yeah, Luther Cressman. And can you talk a little bit about her relational patterns that were set kind of early? She, she fell in love frequently um, with both men and women. Often they were older than her, but not always, um, less so as, as she got older, that makes sense. Um, she discovered aspects of herself in relationships, as we all do, um, and she she liked more. She in, in relationships, at least, she was a more is more person, not in material possessions, but in relationships, she was a more is more person, always making more connections, rarely dropping them. Um, she, she stayed in touch with these people, even after breakups, divorces, um, she, she just loved these human connections and what she could learn from people and how she could express herself with them. Yeah. It seemed like she went, she went through several, lots of people and they overlapped. She didn't, the relationships overlapped where she was in two relationships or three relationships at the same time, which wore me out just reading about it. It Uh, clouded. Yes. Uh, it seemed to me that she didn't have a lot of self-awareness. She wasn't very introspective. Would you call her more of an extroverted kind of person? I think that that's fair. Um, lack of self-awareness or just um, inability to perceive or refusal to perceive that other people moved through the world differently than she did. Um, I think at times she felt that if she could just explain herself better or, or show how things could work, that everyone would just get on board with that. And they didn't. And, and that really irked her. Now, she had described her first marriage to Luther Cressman uh, as a, quote unquote, student marriage, which kind of reveals something about her views of marriage. Can you talk a little bit about that? Her later views of marriage, yes, and and this became a point of contention with them. Luther was a childhood sweetheart. Um, He grew up not far from where she grew up. She met him in high school, and then they were married after World War I. Um, They were dating while she was in college. Much later, um, and she was hashing some of this out in her popular column for Red Book magazine, she was proposing new ideas about marriage that would work better in what she understood to be modern life, where people lived a very long time, they had different phases of their life, they moved around, and she posited that maybe it would be better for everyone 
to have a student marriage, starter marriage, no kids yet, just to try it out, learn about themselves. And if it didn't work out, they could walk away and try again with someone else. So looking back from that period, she called her marriage with Luther Luther, a student marriage. He didn't like that at all. He insisted, and they have dueling autobiographies about this. He insisted that he thought their marriage was forever. That's what the vows that they took said. He said that she believed the same at the time, but later after her life had taken all kinds of turns, um, she imported a different view onto that marriage in part to justify her own choices. Okay, so her field work, let's go to her, to her actual work. Her first field work was in Samoa. Uh, how did this, this really sort of affect her whole life? She had hardly traveled anywhere. This was a great adventure, and she had to convince her mentor, Boaz, to let her go as far as Samoa. She wanted to, to test out a theory that, that Boaz had in arguing against um, another scholar, G. Stanley Hall, about w- what is adolescence and are the turmoils of adolescence that we think of in American culture, flappers, 1920s kind of thing. Do kids just go wild in adolescence because something is happening to their bodies or are the tensions of adolescence more culturally conditioned and in that case, then if you go to a different culture, maybe it would play out very differently. And so Mead really wants to try this out. She wants to go to a really different culture because otherwise you're not getting a good enough test case. Um, now, whether Samoa counted is, is another thing. It was very far away, but this was a place that was well within reach of the American empire and um, Western Christian missions and things like that. But she saw it as and was able to write about it as very different and exotic. And there she saw that, lo and behold, if cultural expectations for youth, particularly young women, were different, then they didn't have the same kind of turmoil in adolescence that uh, American girls did. So she was able to prove her mentor's point against his scholarly antagonist. Now, she thought uh, that service was very important. And one of the things that she liked, I think, about the social gospel was the idea of service, serving humanity. And she used, she used that. She, she wanted to use her anthropology for the betterment of society. And so when World War II co- breaks up out, she uh, is involved in that in some way. How is she involved in the war effort? She ends up writing about food. There is a a program in Washington, D.C. that ends up, version um, aspects of it end up employing a bunch of anthropologists. She she tries to find positions for all of her friends as part of it. Um, There was the, the Cultural and Personality School of Anthropology that Benedict was also part of, some of the other Columbia anthropologists, trying to understand whole cultures as the same way you would understand an individual. And so those anthropologists were doing a lot of trying to understand, especially the Japanese, uh, what, what is the essence of Japanese society and how should that influence the American war effort um, to, to defeat them psychologically while defeating them in other ways. But Mead's little corner of the anthropology and service of the war effort world uh, was largely the food studies talking about how to maintain morale at home and also how American troops could distribute food in places that they controlled, that they had taken back from one of the other warring powers. As well as Mead writes this book for the British to better understand Americans as a bunch of Americans are landing there um, as part of the war effort. And that's the book and Keep Your Powder Dry, which is a, a book of American civil religion, among other things. And, and that was, um, she lectured on that. She was able to speak on the radio about that. So two very different things, the food studies and the and Keep Your Powder Dry, but trying to help these cultures that were coming into collision better understand each other. Okay, after World War II, she became, that's when she really becomes, what I would say, a public intellectual. Uh, and 
what was her interest? What were her areas of interest in using her anthropological knowledge to apply to American society? She was really rattled by the use of um, nuclear bombs. She thought that everything that she had been working on, everything that anyone was working on came to a screeching halt. This was a new world. The stakes were so much higher. Um, This wasn't just human societies colliding with each other, but the prospect of annihilation of everyone. And so her ongoing project of helping people understand each other better, helping them understand where their culture had maybe painted them into a corner and, and a way to get out all became much more urgent. And she's on all these different committees of um, like the, the Conference on Science, Philosophy, and Religion. She's doing interfaith work with Jewish groups, basically trying to keep human beings from wiping themselves off the planet. Now, uh, I want to backtrack a little bit. Before this, she had a she had some negative views. Even though she was in the Episcopal Church, she had some negative views about Christianity in in general, particularly missionary efforts, because she's an anthropologist. She wants to study, she wants to study cultures in their more primitive, you know, situation. And of course, missionaries come in and they change a lot and they import, import or export American ideas. Can you talk about her, uh, her strong uh, rejection of some of that part of Christianity she did not like. This was something that was tricky for me trying to write a spiritual biography of her because there seems to be a period in the 1930s and 1940s that she steps away pretty decisively from Christianity and Christian practice. She was um, in the field for a lot of that. It's not like she could go to church if she was in a jungle somewhere. But While her first husband had been an Episcopal priest, her second husband was um, a a decided atheist. So that was part of it. Um, And also, as she's gaining professional stature, anthropology as a field was fairly hostile to faith. Um, So for personal reasons, professional reasons, um, she, she does not seem to have been involved in or have positive feelings toward Christianity in the 30s and 40s. But later in life, um, there was a very long unpublished interview that she gave. She insisted that she'd never lost her faith and that she'd never really changed her mind about that or much of anything else. And so I had to try to figure out what to do with what seems like a, a, a gap, a rupture, and what she insisted was continuity Uh, Mostly what I could find from the evidence was a rupture and that it's not until she does more field work in Manas and sees this prophet, Palau, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name, unfortunately, leading his society into the future using Christianity. I really think that that shows her, oh, Christianity, rather than being part of the problem that we're seeing, that she's seeing in, in society, could be part of the solution. And then she digs in, um, renews her church membership, starts serving on a a dizzying array of church communities to try to make that happen. Church committees, I'm sorry, to try to make that happen. Now, uh, her definition of Christianity, uh, I think we need to be more specific because I know that she liked the brotherhood aspect, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, that sort of thing, Uh, the ritual of the Episcopal Church. But she did not necessarily embrace uh, particulars, you know, of the of the faith. Uh, can you talk about her relationship to some of the particulars? Was she more of a social? She embraced the social vision of the Christian faith versus the you know the dogma or the doctrine about God and Jesus and the Virgin Mary and all that stuff. Yes, I would say that that's accurate. She she did not like dogma and doctrine either the specifics of a lot of it or anybody insisting that they could know such things and and um, and judge anyone who didn't agree with them on those things. She did like ritual. She liked going to church, especially for high church worship. Um, but various people who attended church with her would say that she tended to sleep through parts of it. 
She would sometimes come and go. She she didn't seem to pay that much attention to sermons. Um, she liked music, but maybe not so much with the singing along. But ritual, and especially the possibility for rituals to create continuity in time between people living now and people living before, as well as multiple generations at any given time. She thought that that was really powerful. She thought that ritual did a lot for human beings and human society. And so she was very invested in, she ended up being part of the committee to revise the the Book of Common Worship for, for the church, specifically on baptism rituals, because she wanted the work of rituals to go forward. Whether she cared as much about what those liturgical um, formula said about God, I don't think that was it so much. Sometimes sometimes she had very strong views on those things. So I, it isn't fair to say that she just didn't care. But that there was a ritual and that it tied people together across time and across geography, that, that was a, a big value for her. What I wondered when I was reading this is I was asking, did she have anyone that she would consider a spiritual guide, a, uh, someone she would go to with her questions? Or was she just sort of like on her own? She just kind of, you know, figured it out on her by herself. She did have some people that she was close to. Uh, Father Austin Ford, he doesn't come up as much in my book as I would have liked. Um, the, the documentary record that I was able to get was spotty. But that was someone she corresponded with for years. In her later life, he ran a mission in Atlanta, Um she would go down at least once a year. She and her late in life partner, Rhoda Metro, would go down there. Uh, that's where she wanted her clothes to be donated after she died. Um, she, he was one of a number of priests that she became friends with. Um, there was also an, an Orthodox cleric that um, she thought very highly of. And she would see these guys at conferences. She would see these guys as she got involved in the World Council of Churches meetings and a lot of correspondence. But she she moved around so much. And I think she probably was a bit resistant to direct nearby hierarchy authority. Um, she would go to church in New York. That's where she spent most of her most of her mature years. But she wasn't really part of congregational life. And when she renewed her church membership, it was to the little church back in Pennsylvania where she had been baptized and married the first time, not a church. So that pastor could not really exercise any pastoral authority over her. She she picked clerical friends and looked to them for wisdom and spiritual guidance, but never in a relationship that that she couldn't manage. It wasn't the pastor that she had to sit down below, looking up at the pulpit every week. I, I don't think that that was something that appealed to her. Which would you say in your work? I didn't see it in the book, and I'm just wondering: Did she ever have what it would you know we call the dark night of the soul? Did she ever have a moment in her life where she was in really in distress? And did religion play any role in that? I think maybe the deepest distress was when she was coming back from. Samoa. She has to decide what to do about her first marriage, as well as this guy she met on the boat, who would then become her second husband, as well as Ruth Benedict, with whom she had been in love for years. Religion does not seem to have played a big role there. She was arguing with the guy who would become her second husband, Rayo Fortune, about religion some. She was arguing with Ruth about it some, but this was more of a, a personal, relational, romantic, sexual crisis, I, I would say. Okay. This is what, this is astounded at me that she lived for so long and, and did so much that she just didn't seem to be very attuned to her, to herself. It's very interesting. So anyway, I guess that would be another book, Psychological Profile. But <laughs> so how did she... Now she goes to Manus, which you talk about it, and and it affects her view of Christianity and sees possibilities. And I think at that point she can kind of see how social science or anthropology and religion can kind of work together to improve the current situation, because anthropologists were studying 
sort of basically the past and, you know, primitive societies. But how can anthropology uh, join with religion kind of recreate the future? I thought that was interesting. She kind of took anthropology in a different direction. Yes, absolutely. She she accepts that change is happening, again, especially after the, the, the beginning of the nuclear age. Um, so any nostalgia that anthropologists might have for primitive ways are, are better. Let's try to find an intact culture. She, she loses patience with that. No, 20th century is all about change. How is change going to be managed in a way that is healthy for as many people as possible, men and women and non-binary and white and non-white? And what are all the resources that can be brought to bear to make that change work? And yes, anthropological resources, as well as Christian resources, that's the approach that she takes. Now, she becomes involved in many like church-related committees and organizations, not the parish level, but at the, you know, at the higher denominational level, to international level of, of liberal Christianity. Uh, what did she offer? What was she offering these religious institutions? And why would they, were they willing to take her on? That's a good question. She the the files, her her files are just astonishingly broad. It's her archives and the the South Pacific Ethnographic Collection is the largest collection in the Library of Congress. It's just mind bogglingly immense, and huge series of files in there are just her organizational records. And it's hard to know. Sometimes she just seems to have been on a lot of mailing lists. Um, or she would go to one meeting and then she's on the mailing list forever. We probably have that experience now. You know, you donate to one cause once and the next thing you know, you're on, you're getting email from them like every other day. It's that only in paper is part of it. Um, sometimes, especially in, in church work, she was kind of the token woman or one of very few women. She was there with her anthropological organizational expertise um, I, th- I think a lot of it is she just said yes to stuff, and okay. that's what happens. <laughs> Every, just, everybody wants to talk to you then. But then she was not only she was also had a kind of a vision for church reform. She wanted to reform the church, and she had ideas about what the churches should be doing and what they were doing wrong and what would be better. And it seemed like they, she was getting a hearing. Yes, yes, sometimes she did. She wanted churches to be much more involved in in what we would think of as anti-racism. That's a a hallmark of the Boaz Anthropological School throughout the 20th century. Um, She she complained about churches not working fast enough on that. She wanted churches to be involved in um, urban settings. Um, Cities are changing a lot in the middle of the 20th century, and, and we know now that there was the white flight to the suburbs and these big downtown churches being left behind. So how could city churches navigate the changes in the urban landscape? She, as she herself got older, was very interested in aging and how churches could have a role, be a place for older people, particularly older women to contribute, to continue contributing to society. If so much of American culture in the baby boom years was relegating women to the role of being a mother of a nuclear family in a little house somewhere. Well, either what do you do if, if you never have children, but what do you do after your children are, are grown? You might have 20, 30 years of your life and neither churches nor American society seem to have a whole lot of use for women in that phase of life. And she was really pushing for um, those women to continue to be fulfilled and to continue to contribute to society. There was a lot of potential there that she wanted to show people how to tap. What was interesting to me is what, how she resisted the whole debate about uh, women's ordination. And one of the reasons that she gave for it was that she basically thought that the priest was, was, was too elevated, had too much was on the shoulders of the priest and more should be put on the, on the lay people so that, to minimize, you know, the significance of the priestly uh, role, and and she never really was never really bought the idea that women would be p- priests in the Episcopal Church. That was a, a fun thing to investigate. Um, no, she she was not keen on women's ordination, 
some of that to me seemed like just age. Um, she had certain ideas of what church could look like that had been true for most of her life. And if you've always only seen male clergy and you're in your 60s or 70s, um, it, it's maybe hard to imagine a change of that magnitude. She also did have lots of friends who were priests. And, and some people, um, her the big biography from the closer to the time of her death, the early 80s, the Jane Howard, talked to a lot of people who knew her who would say she just loved priests and she would flirt with them. But she she liked who they were and what they represented and that they stood up in front of the church with the robes and everything. So even though some of the impulses that she had, like older lay women should be empowered and and given useful things to do, um, collided with a fairly traditionalist vision of who ought to be in front of church and, and how certain liturgical things ought to go. So then she has to decide or, or, I don't know who decided that she should write about this. This was for the Red Book um, column that she she wrote, and she wrote along with her partner, Rhoda Metro, for years and years. Some comment on women's ordination after the ordination of the Philadelphia Eleven, and I found these various drafts of the piece, and there were notes back and forth and initials. And I, um, Mead's daughter, Mary Catherine Bateson, was also involved. She also was a social scientist who was very involved in the Episcopal Church. When Mead was working on liturgical renewal, she was working on this with her daughter. They were co-writing prayers and proposed liturgies and things. And Mary Catherine Bateson was really more adept and informed at all of that than than Mead was herself. Um, So it's sort of Mary Catherine Bateson and Rhoda Metro trying to nudge Mead toward accepting women's ordination. And Mead just kind of doesn't want to go. And then in the files, suddenly there's a completely different draft of an article that is much more positive on women's ordination. And having spent enough time with these files, by that point, I decided, oh, me just punted it. She didn't write that. Rhoda did. And I checked it with Rhoda's son. I was able to be in contact with both um, Daniel Matro, Rhoda's son, and Mary Catherine Bateson before she very recently passed away. Um, and, and Daniel Metro confirmed, yeah, that he looked at the writings like, yeah, that's, that's definitely my mom. That wasn't Margaret. <laughs> well, what's really interesting about that, her position on women's ordination is, uh, that you're saying it was her age, but she was an anthropologist and she, she, she understood social change and she was involved in pretty radical ways of life in terms of, you know, traditional marriage. It's interesting that she would not naturally just go there. Uh, that one just stuck in her craw for some reason. I, I I didn't get to the bottom of it, but she was she was pretty adamant. And she began she began her Red Book magazine column in 1962, which she writes through 1978. What kind of topics did she address? Oh my gosh, everything. <laughs> um, and some of these were a lot of them were Q and A columns, and the questions. Some of them were actually sent into Red Book by readers. Some of them were written by Red Book staffers to summarize things that they were hearing from readers or just ask things that they thought their readers would be interested in. Also, Mead lectured almost constantly. She she traveled so much, even after she pretty much stopped doing foreign field work. And often in those audiences, she would ask people to write down their questions for her on three by five cards. And then her assistant would collect those. So questions that didn't get answered in the auditorium might get answered in the column. And yeah, they were they were really, really all over the place. They were about families. They were about pop culture. They were about sexuality. They were about marriage. They were about UFOs. They were any, any, anything you want is in there. So she sort of becomes a cult hero, and you, she describes her as a guru mother <laughs> yes. to many. I thought that was really interesting. She, she becomes, at this point, by this time, of course, She's not just an anthropologist. She's just this sort of guru for culture. Especially you, in the Red Book column. She, she's like Dear Abby with a PhD in anthropology. Yeah, okay. So uh, you didn't really talk about this, but how did her anthropological peers view all this? Pretty much exactly as you would expect. They're, 
They're intensely jealous that she has so much of an audience. They're dismissive of how breezy and off the cuff she is. She'll comment authoritatively on things that she has no business being an authority on. Um, yeah, all, all, all the things, all the typical things. <laughs> okay. I wonder how she, how is she viewed today? Do you know? Is her work, is, did her, her work hold up, her anthropological work? Do we know? Some of it more than others. Um, the, the coming of age of Samoa came under really fierce attack by um, Derek Freeman, and they had a, a personal history between them. Not They, they were never in a relationship, but she um, made some remarks that he took as cutting once the first time they met. And so he just like seethed for decades and tried to think of how he could get back at her. He, um, he, he's, he's a difficult figure. Um, and, and he claimed after she had died in his two big books that she had been hoaxed in Samoa, that her informants had been lying to her and she had just concocted a narrative of that society that, that didn't hold up at all. Subsequently, people have looked back at that and said, well, her work wasn't perfect, but it's way better than his. She was not hoaxed. Also, they were there decades apart. So the society had changed. Also, his informants were male and hers were female. So it makes sense that you would get a different perspective. So some of her fieldwork and her fieldwork methods, she was writing about fieldwork methods when that was still pretty new. We're we're just coming out of the armchair anthropology era where um, mostly men in the West would comment authoritatively on societies that they'd never seen at all. All they had were records that had come back from missionaries and colonial overseers and and other random travelers. So she's going out in the field and also trying to hash out fieldwork methods for subsequent anthropologists. Some of that is still used. Some of her early use of photography and film in anthropology is still very um, highly regarded. I didn't get into that as much in here because that phase in her career and working with her third husband, Gregory Bateson, who was also an atheist, um, didn't have as much about Christianity. Um, it did have religion. Um, she's looking at, at trance and dance in Bali and things like that. Um, so yes, there are aspects of her work that are still respected, but perhaps in part because she just wrote so much on so many different things. The, um, authoritative bibliography of her work that isn't even complete because I think it only goes to 1975, 1,400 items. And if you're writing that much that quickly, it's not all going to be duly footnoted. And it's not deep enough in any particular academic conversation that people later in that conversation necessarily have to reckon with it. Um, Her work on, on sex and gender in the 30s that people still have to reckon with, and they have a variety of perspectives on it. Some of the other things, she did such a drive-by on it. She was moving so fast that she doesn't have as much influence on on those conversations going forward. Now, she was concerned, in terms of social issues, she was concerned about arms, the arms race, population control, war. Uh, can you, can you, do you see how she might have brought uh, religious ethics into that, or how she connected uh, religious ethics in these issues with what she called, I think, uh, I think she called this human development, right, or or even human evolution. Um, yeah, and I would also add to that the um, your list of the the nuclear weapons and war, also environmental degradation, and um, population goes along with that. All these things that were posing an existential threat to the human race in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and going forward. Um, she brings that together in several places, including the one printed sermon that she gave at, at the Yale Chapel um, and, and taking a cue from her Russian Orthodox church leader friend, um, Bloom, I'm looking for his first name, it's, it's escaping me right now, Basically looking at um, a biblical passage about having love for your family and expanding that to the whole human race. If you think of people beyond your biological family or your kinship network or tribe, if you think of them all as your family, then you can be lifted out of this us versus them mentality that was so prevalent in the Cold War 
and think that what's good for them is also what would be good for me. I need to make the world safe for other people's children. And that is uh, certainly a social scientific way of thinking, but she would say that it's also deeply Christian. She could root it in the scriptures and in the, the Christian tradition, an expansive, accepting Christian tradition rather than a really divisive and enemy-making Christian tradition. Now, her uh, her third husband was Gregory Bateson. She had Catherine, her only daughter, from with him, and uh, they, they, they eventually divorced, and she... She ends up having her final uh, life partner is this Rhoda Metro. Is that okay? And Metro, um, can you can you tell us about that relationship? And yeah, can, what can you tell us about insight into that? Right, they met probably during World War II. Rhoda Metro was a trained anthropologist, as was her first husband. So, um, and Rhoda worked for a while as Gregory's secretary on one of these wartime projects. Um, but then after the war and after the end of Margaret's third marriage, um, she, she becomes romantically involved with Rhoda. They were never married. You couldn't really do that at the time, but they did combine households. The, um, Mead's daughter, Mary Catherine, she was about out of the house by then. I believe she was in high school, whereas Rhoda's son, Daniel, was younger, maybe 10 or 11. So they didn't overlap that much. But the women combined households. They worked together. Um, Rhoda was a more retiring personality. And while they, I think, had a, a fairly equal partnership in thinking about things, Rhoda only wanted Margaret's name on anything. Um, numerous times in the record, Margaret offers to give her credit and, and Rhoda doesn't want it, uh, which was part of why I had to do the sleuthing on the, the Red Book column about women's ordination. Um, you had to start to understand in, in the files and the drafts what the initials meant and who was the better speller. If something was misspelled, probably Margaret wrote it herself. Her spelling was atrocious. Um, their relationship then lasted to the end of Mead's life, although it had rocky periods, including um, towards the very end of Mead's life when she was ill with cancer and she approached it in a rather idiosyncratic way. She um, didn't want to do a lot of medical treatment. She instead employed a faith healer who both Rhoda and Mary Catherine Bateson despised. So that created a lot of tension. Um, it's it's poignant. The the correspondence that I could find between Margaret and Rhoda was, was frequently poignant. Margaret saying, I still love you and it doesn't seem to be enough and I just don't know why this isn't working. So what is what was Margaret Mead's relationship to religion at the end of her life? You talk about she had this faith healer uh come in to help her with her cancer. Uh, what else did we can was she going to church at the end of her life? What was she was she being reflective at all? Because it, she didn't seem like she was. She just wanted to keep going and pretend. She wanted to keep going. She was She was in denial about the cancer. Everything. Everything she was in denial about. Okay. Well, she's also super involved. That was another kind of difficult chapter for me to write because there's so much going on right at the end. She's friends with Jimmy Carter and trying to influence national policy that way. She's heading up this task force for the National Council of Churches trying to decide how to respond to nuclear power. And Gregory Bateson gets cancer. She thinks that he's going to die. She, Mary Catherine Bateson is working at a school in Iran by this point. Margaret's telling her she needs to come back to see her father while Margaret's not admitting to anybody. Yes, I also was diagnosed with cancer. And Margaret employs this faith healer which picks up on a, a theme that had been there, though not as prevalent from earlier in Mead's career. Um, she was interested in the paranormal. And she'd seen things, especially in the field, like the trans and dance in Bali, that she couldn't otherwise explain. She wasn't sure that it was spirits, but she was open to the possibility that long unpublished interview that I alluded to with Jean Houston, 
um, those two women agreed that sure, they're spirits. Sure, there there are beings that some people can see and and some people can't. And it it's perhaps another more is more aspect of of Mead's personality and spirituality. Why not more? Why why should I foreclose these possibilities? But all these things then get on a collision course when she when Mead finally her health fails and she's in the hospital and everybody and their aunt want to come see her. And she had kind of managed different aspects of her life and personality by never seeing all these people in a room together. And she could, she could turn things on, turn on aspects of her personality in different places. Well, now she's in very poor health and she can't go anywhere. And these people keep coming and they don't get along with each other. And she's, she's really wrung out. It's, it's really hard for her right at the end. So what would, what do you want the reader to know about Mead? What's the takeaway? (laughs) She's fascinating. She was a, a person with a spiritual life. That's a thing that's not often known about her. And once you realize that about her, you can put some of the many disparate elements of her life together in a different way. Maybe you can see some themes and continuities running through there. She's also an example of a prominent liberal Protestant woman in the 20th century. And we don't have a lot of those, um, just a little story. But when she was getting into this committee work, there were sometimes other women on the committees, but the way those records were kept, it was always Mrs. So-and-so. And so sometimes it would take me the better part of an afternoon just to find who was this woman. What was her first name? She was powerful in the church structure, but I had to do all kinds of research just to recover her first name. There were women, there were women doing things in liberal Protestantism, but even now it's hard to recover who they were and what they did. Mm. Okay, Alicia, you have been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. And Thank you so much. This is really a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This is your this is your host Lillian Barger.